0: Welcome back to the 1208-Bit Nerd Church podcast, a part of the Jackson Cloud Network. If you're looking for an online church right now during corona, you can check out Jackson Cloud. Or today we've got another option as well. You can check out First Baptist Church. The pastor from over there, Dallas Flippin, has joined me and Ty in the Jackson Cloud studios uh, to talk about Snowpiercer. And now this is exciting because... I can't even remember how we got into this topic. Oh, I had posted something online about Revelation, and then Dallas tells me... <laughs> snow piercer is a good analogy for revelation and all i remember is that's captain america on a train <laughs> with a lot of blood isn't it like i saw this at one point <laughs> go on i'm curious so so uh i watched it after you mentioned that i'm like i'm gonna figure this out before it tells me well, how is this a revelation oh it did the exact same thing yeah, Tyler, it the exact same thing it last week and and was like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, wrapping my brain around. I'm going to figure out before he tells me. Um, and so we have uh, decided to make an entire episode where Dallas comes and blows all of our minds, <laughs> and tells us how Snowpiercer is Revelation. But before we get to that. First off, you can watch this movie on Netflix, at least at the moment, uh, but maybe we should just kind of recap yeah, some what, of what the movie. What happened in that movie, guys? Yeah, a lot of things <laughs> happened in this movie. Yeah. And what's what's fascinating is probably
1: many people haven't seen the movie in the U.S., mm-hmm. which is wrapped up around the Me Too movement, because Harvey Weinstein's company was the company <laughs> yeah. in charge of distribution. Oh, okay. he, really didn't, he really wanted to cut the movie, hmm. and Bong, director Bong Joon-ho... Uh, didn't want to budge on that front. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the compromise was basically that Weinstein just wasn't going to show it in the U.S. True. So the, the U.S. budget or the U.S. gross was like $4.5 million out of their total $86 million they made worldwide. Mm-hmm. But all because Harvey Weinstein didn't want to show the Can't movie. To well,
2: I'll be honest. When, when his name played on my screen... My wife got up and left the room. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not watching this. So like, now it's even worse. Worse off for it. Like, it's gonna be even harder to get people to watch it. Even though, man, you should watch the movie. It's really great. Like, oh man. Uh, yeah, no. But with uh, with Snowpiercer and everything, how did, did you know anything about that? That kind of history, like what ended up happening, with, like how it got started, or anything like that.
1: I didn't know the history before watching it. Um, my history of how I got to Snowpiercer was watching Parasite and being completely blown away
0: um, with. Which I watched after watching. This, oh, yeah. Because then I realized it was the same guy. Yes. He's also the guy who did The Host, I think. The Host? Back I, in the day. Uh, and Oakja? Yeah. I watched The Host before I had any taste for. Subtitles, So I just wasn't into it. But mm-hmm. I think now that I've seen these two movies, I'm like, maybe I want to go back and rewatch that. I going <laughs> to yeah. enjoy it now.
1: And I think Kong Ho Song, uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, but I believe he was in The Host and yeah.
0: Snowpiercer
1: and Parasite. Yeah,
0: which I didn't even recognize him because <laughs> in Snowpiercer, he kind of looks like a, yeah, I'll take you all out. And then in, in Parasite, is like, you know. Someone's dad. <laughs> Something like that. I, was like, I didn't even know this was the same guy. Or maybe I have the wrong person. Yeah. So yeah, I loved Parasite.
1: It just felt like a movie that was almost perfectly done. Mm-hmm. Like every little seed that it plants both was fulfilling, but also it wasn't scripted so easily that
0: you knew what was gonna come next. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did and so I movie? wanted to go watch Parasite? The rest of it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched it on Hulu like, two weeks ago, <laughs> after watching Snowpiercer, like, three weeks ago. So, I watched
2: Snowpiercer for the first time in high school. So, I was, uh, I'm young. I'm 24, guys. And, uh, so, back in high school, my stepdad, he rented, like, every movie that came out. And we, we always watched them. We went to, like, the, the video store back when that was a thing. And, uh, he would bring home these DVDs, and we watched it. And I remember sitting there going, this is amazing. That's awesome. And I tried to talk about it with my friends, and everyone was like, What? So yeah, that, that brings it, now I'm like, oh, that makes sense. No one saw this. Yeah. I don't remember going, I always went to theater to see new movies, too, and I don't remember
0: yeah, going. Kinda, I think it skipped theater. Yeah, did
2: it go no. to theaters?
0: No. no. Only in a couple markets, I think. Really? So I don't think wow. it went yeah. very far. I and mean, I think the whole thing's, what, based off a of graphic novel? Yeah. First? Yeah, that's so what I heard. You said you were
1: walking around a movie store. Yeah. Um, Director Bong talks about walking around a comic store that he loved to go to, uh, I, think, I think in Seal, but... He went into the comic store, picked up a graphic novel by a, a French, uh, a French graphic novel, and was just blown away by it. And he said he read the whole thing in the store, which <laughs> I think he then went and purchased it because he said he left the store knowing he wanted to make the movie. Um, but the the basic premise of his story he kept, though he changed a whole lot of the rest of it. I think, but um, the the main premise being kind of most of the world is, has completely been destroyed. All of humanity survives on a train and the kind of weird economic and class systems and such that works themselves out and that kind of your seat that you had as you entered this this train becomes your seat forever you know and and kind of the mystery of
0: what to do or or what might happen after that
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah and that's if you haven't seen the movie first off you could pause this go watch it real quick and come back Or just to kind of get your general synopsis was that they're all stuck on a train in kind of a class system and it's more or less like the people at the end of the train, the poorest social class, feeling just like it's time to work their way up to the front and demand justice, if you will. Which along the way, a lot of other kind of horrific things kind of come out. You know, you find out what they've been eating this whole time. These protein blocks is just a bunch of like what, locusts or something? is? It looked like that. Some kind of gross bug. I thought it was cockroaches. Oh, yeah, that's probably closer. If it's more horrific, it's probably that. <laughs> you get to the front of the train and you find out, like, even the good guys are bad guys. Like, they... Chris Evans' character used to eat babies, basically, you know, like... Because that was how they survived. Until a poorer person showed them a better way. But then you find out the poorer person was a bad guy, too. Because... He works with the front of the train to keep the back of the train in line. Or was he? Was the guy lying? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I was confused if I was supposed to assume that wasn't the case Man, or not. I, he could have been lying to us. We have no idea. Yeah. And then you've got these people who have been like, hi, the whole movie, but... Were they? I, I, oh, for I, sure. But they were collecting all of this stuff. <laughs> you can be high and know what you're doing. Well, yeah, but they collected all the stuff that <laughs> makes you high so that they could blow up the train because it was explosive. So he, like, he had a like, did they lot. use it? Were they faking it? He had a lot. I of just him. don't know what was happening. And it wasn't all there by the end. <laughs> I think you you
1: you might like a Tolkien reference. I feel like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, Nam-Gung's plan was a little bit of being the hobbit on the way to Mordor Uh, of he's so nobody cares about him because he looks like the druggie who isn't caring Hmm. and he's actually the most dangerous person on the train Mm -hmm. but he never looks that way and he kind of sneaks his way into being able to overthrow this whole system. And and nobody even notices him.
2: Oh yeah, I mean the moment where he—I mean—he's the force for everything that happens in this movie. That that ends up being like a, a huge uprising is started by something that he either possessed or he is doing. Like uh, the match alone, it, it it changes the entire course of the movie. I mean that we wouldn't have seen the second half of the movie if that match wouldn't have been there, right? So like, wow.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: what's what's the past called? That's one of my favorite scenes. Is mm-hmm. just. Uh, when they finally hit, they're all counting down: three, two, one. Happy New Year! It's yeah, just that's total, just strange, total a shift. Bit. Yeah. Uh, but that absurdist like, quality is just like that. I feel like it works really well in this kind of moment because it's this post-apocalyptic world. They don't. They've been living in a world where this is just how you live. You know, putting down an uprising is just another part of the day, guys.
1: Yeah. I, I don't often <clears throat> kind of find myself. Disagreeing with a synopsis <clears throat> But the IMDb synopsis Like if you go to the front page of the movie uh, I found myself Disagreeing quite a bit So I am curious if you would disagree with it of, It says in a future where a failed climate change experiment Has killed all life At the end yeah. of the movie I don't think that that's actually true <laughs> Yeah <laughs> I mean, It's um, not established but at least. <laughs> Except for the lucky few mm-hmm. I don't know if I would necessarily characterize those On the train even as as lucky or not, like that. No, that's an interesting kind of phrasing. Who boarded the Snowpiercer, a train that travels around the globe? A new class system emerges, and I don't know that it's a new one.
0: No, you know I think it's yeah.
1: <laughs> the old world is being maintained, and yep. I think that's part of the social
0: commentary is. Mm all of the prior problems are still yeah, problems. This
2: is just an extension of the problems we currently have. That's the whole yeah, point I felt.
0: That kind of seems like whoever wrote that synopsis was maybe a little blind to <laughs>
2: <laughs> Or didn't to, even to watch the point of the movie,
0: movie yeah. Yeah. was kinda of to draw all this out. That's what I thought was to some extent That's interesting. So well done in this is the same thing in Parasite is like yeah, you know, at one point in Parasite, you're like, man, I don't even know if I like the <laughs> protagonist in this movie until suddenly like you see them go home to the slums and it's overflowing with sewage and you're like, Wow. You know, just like it's it's a strange, horrific dark comedy that brings you aware to kind of social problems and issues. And and that's what Snowpiercer kind of does as well. You're like, Yeah, you know what we do in many ways force people into sections where you can't get out until there is some kind of like the pain just brings it alive and and that section of the train starts moving their way to the front to say this is wrong you know which speaks volumes to many of the issues that we're going through today um but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm still looking for those revelation pieces, too. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah where's that going, man? <laughs> but before we get there, if there's anything no. else you need to lie the ground <laughs> with before you go there, that's fine, too. Yeah.
2: I mean, there is one thing that I noticed in this movie where we were talking about, like, the social justice, like, commentary and the people, like, moving up, oh. um, like, in their station and everything. I found that the—what we often find that violence, you know, can be grotesque and over-the-top for a lot of things— I feel like the violence in this movie was never viewed positively. Like, there could be cool shots, but it was always, like, everyone that died, it was like, it mattered, you know? In that moment, it mattered that that person was dying. It, the When, even at the past scene, where there is multiple people dying, at the end of that scene, we see the guy say, yeah, okay, everybody go, like, clean up, and he even mentions, uh, Gillian, or Gilliam mentions, uh, that that moment he's just trying to assess how many people they have left. Yeah. You know, and to me, a lot of movies make these big scenes and every single death has this cool moment, but the violence never sits as this this weight to every single death was big. There wasn't even a side character on our protagonist's side that you didn't feel for when they died, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was a moment they they had a moment to to show you the humanity of that death. The bad people even had moments where you're like, I can feel for that death. It was, it's interesting. And I, I think it was a little bit more of a step forward than what we normally get out of a Hollywood movie for, for violence.
0: Yeah, cause like at the end of The Magnificent Seven, that Western movie with Chris Pratt, like everyone's <laughs> dead. There's like blood and bullets everywhere. And like the music is like, we did it. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, yeah. You've lost everything. It's like, no, violently we took everything back. Whereas this movie, kind of like, no, the violence isn't like... It's not good. Yeah, <laughs> nor does it ultimately bring about redemption in no. the end of this or anything.
1: And so. do you see the the movie's perspective, I think, through nong who keeps t- getting his, um, uh, his daughter, Yona, he... he Protects her from killing a few times. Yeah, like there are times where they're in the midst of fighting and their lives might end And she picks up a knife to kill this bad guy bad guy from their perspective and He stops her in the middle of like holding the other guy down. He uses his other hand to stop her attack (laughs) Yeah, and when she drops the knife then Chris Evans character picks it up to kill the guy and but it's He keeps trying to restrain her from being a part of the violence Mm -hmm. Um ultimately she does have some violence in the end um, when she picks up a gun in that last scene but it's interesting to see how I think there is a respect for you know some action like I don't know at some point in the middle of a John Wick movie you know (laughs) The death count is just so high that you're like, oh yeah, this is just a person that's going to yeah. die in a second here. background person died.
0: Never yeah. kill his dog. Yeah. <laughs> even even this it.
2: background drug character that uh, the the one guy that's playing off as a drug person maybe might be doing drugs, he steals them and this guy says, I'm going to kill you as they're leaving the room. I don't know if you guys noticed this. He says, I'm going to kill you. He's the same guy that goes to attack him and he pushes over the edge to be like destroyed in the, the gears. Hmm. It's That's the same person it's the same like same voice same actor same everything like he made these characters and if you're paying attention it's still weighty like that's a moment where he's like I don't want to kill this person but he's going to try to kill me if I don't you know like stop him hmm. it's it's really interesting like he he cared about making how he made this
1: movie like who kills who and how mattered to him hmm. well i think that maybe the place to start is to talk about that there's a difference in apocalyptic and an apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's a lot of people who have an apocalyptic mindset but didn't necessarily write an apocalypse-genre story. And so I think there's kind of an overlapping. There's a lot of apocalyptic elements in Snowpiercer, but there's also some elements of, like, the genre of an apocalypse. So I think they all kind of are interconnected. So it's hard to know where to start, necessarily. But one place is every apocalyptic story has duality. It's an us versus them, good versus evil, you know, insiders and outsiders. And the world is, usually we can tell that it's more nuanced than that. But these stories in the midst of, I think probably in the midst of persecution, you don't want to see the nuance. Like, it's a very stark pick-a-side. And in this movie, there's a ton of train cars. But they keep using the language of, are you the head or the tail?
0: Mm.
1: You know, the hat on the head or the shoe on the foot, you know, and like you know your place, stay in your place. And they've kind of pushed down the categories of everybody into front and tail, you know, and and it makes it a little bit easier to just kind of do what you need to do to survive, and whether that's keep pushing the tail down or, you know, trying to overthrow the head. Um, but you've kind of really easily just Made a dualistic system. And uh, I think that there's enough characters in the story to realize that it's actually much more nuanced than that of mm-hmm. like the kind of middle class, so to speak, of the train, as I think one of the more fascinating parts of the train because the front and the, the tail of the train are both windowless, both kind of dark. Mm-hmm. Um, the tail, because they have no access to anything, the front, seemingly because they want to kind of the drugs and the drinking and things to kind of get out of this world or something.
0: Mm.
1: And the middle is where you've got this explosion of color and you've got windows looking outside and all of this. Um, but the people on the train still kind of think of themselves in this, well, those tail people. They're somebody different, you know, they're, they're lower. Uh, we know that we're better than that. Uh, but it's a little bit easier to have a revolt just categorizing somebody as just you're a part of the oppressive forces that are the head of me. Uh, and so I think it kind of, they simplify things pretty well in the movie. Um, but the, let's, let's start with how an apocalypse tells a story. There's two major kinds of ways. Uh, I'll, I'll mention the first way that we don't see and that we don't have really in Revelation, uh, which is a historical sketch story of an apocalypse in which you can imagine, if I want to talk about the end of things and the beginning of a new era, I want to tell all of the history of things that have happened up till this moment, to show how God was actually in control. All these other powers seem like they're in control, but here's the power that's been in charge this whole time. And so, like in uh, First Enoch, you get—I can't remember which chapters are the animal apocalypse, but yeah, um, that's almost like
0: Second Enoch, isn't it?
1: Maybe so. Um, I I get
0: confused once we get to all these weird
1: beasts. (laughs) Because there's the—I think that I think though that there is. One of the five books in First Enoch, I think, is the Animal Apocalypse. But in that story, it's the retelling of Israel, and they're all kind of cast as these animals and characters. Mm -hmm. And most of the time when you do this kind of story, it's so that you can make commentary about what's about to happen. So you're showing, okay, well, God's actually been in charge on all of these things, and now we get to this moment. Do you trust God's control? And so that's one form of an apocalypse. Uh, Maybe you see it a little bit in Daniel and some of its imagery because you kind of have the telling of the end of these different empires, and then you get to the Greeks. Yes. kind of like, well, what's going to happen now? Uh, but the other form of an apocalypse is the otherworldly journey. of You get visions, you get higher into the heavens, you get closer to God, and as you ascend, you learn more about the order and structure of the universe, more about who God is, um, and more about how God wants things ordered. And that's clearly the more paralleled version of of what we see in Snowpiercer, but what I find fascinating in Snowpiercer is it's done a 90 degree angle, and this vertical uh, yeah. ascent is now turned on its side, and it's each train car. You don't know what's next up ahead of you. And so you get a new, a new look at the order of the train every time you enter a new car. And, um, and that's kind of where the tension and the curiosity of the story unravels is, okay, what's, what's on the other side of this? And what happens when you get to the end of it? Who's there, what's, the, what's in charge? Um, and all of that kind of stuff. Revelation, I think, even though it's really early in Revelation, I still think the otherworldly journey is really important, at least even just getting to the throne room, is that, that scene sets everything else that follows, is once I realize that after all of these powerful things that seem to be oppressing the world, if I can look into heaven, somehow it's the slain lamb that's the victorious beast, not yep. the monsters. That actually, God's in control. These martyrs uh, are vindicated, you know, and that that image allows you then to play out the rest of kind of history and and be faithful. Uh, but I think so. Snowpiercer, you're wondering what is this journey going to reveal about the world, about humanity, about who's in control, and there's certainly a lot of control conversation in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean. Everything from this everything in this movie is about order and control, mm-hmm. and that's apocalypses are about that. Now, uh, I think what gets interesting about Snowpiercer is I probably would ca- categorize it as like a humanistic apocalypse. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not necessarily atheistic. You could have a reading in which you could imagine a god figure, but. And it has a lot of commentary, which I think we should save for later, of what is it saying about religion. But you don't need a God in the story to kind of have the events that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So what does it play with this otherworldly journey? How does it play on this? Uh, And maybe we should save how we feel like that affects things in the end of what's this otherworldly journey saying. Mm. Um, But there are a lot of characteristics of an apocalypse that revelation can seem really strange. And maybe understanding Revelation through seeing a bizarre other kind of apocalypse might be illuminating that. Uh, and sometimes the things that we have forgotten to notice. Uh, we mentioned earlier all the violence. Mm-hmm. Revelation has a, a lot of death that we can really easily gloss over. And it's calculated. And if you think about in Snowpiercer and they start counting, okay, how many people are dead? How many people do we need to die?
0: Yeah.
1: And you start thinking about, well, a quarter of the population, are those kinds of numbers of we're just going to clear out a certain segment of the world. Um, This kind of calculation of what kind of number do you need to renew and to kind of transform. And I think sometimes we can read these texts and feel like Revelation, we can feel cold to them. Like we don't care or don't notice the amount of death or like lingering with the death of characters, even when they're bad characters in our story, you know, like, oh, yeah, this is heavy. I don't know that I should be so joyful of, yes. you know, of the violence, um, but there's a calculation to the death, and it's, I think, meant to be stark, meant to be like shocking, because ultimately, an apocalypse is trying to make the viewer or the reader make a decision in the real world, and I think it needs to shake you, mm-hmm. to wake you up, and so I think the violence in Snowpiercer definitely shakes you, right? I mean, it. Yeah. It's, it is graphic. Is there any, like, graphic elements that really stood out to you of, like, moments in the movie that... Yeah. Uh, well, there's a lot
2: of graphic moments. I mean, for violence. Uh, I mean, just in the sense that there are children being used to run a machine, right? Like, when you see in the end. Um, maybe, like, a lot of us don't see that as violence. But, like, these children are being tortured daily, you know, having to maintain a machine like the good of everyone else, you know. Uh, but like some of the the more the violence that really stood out um, that we see that's obvious um, when they're fighting in like the uh, what's it called like a sa- the sauna room kind of a thing. Um, for some reason, all, all that those moments really stuck out, you know, just a little bit more for me at least. Um, when someone gets stabbed or something, you know, you have to watch their face, and he doesn't cut away from the awful reaction of those characters right it's it's graphic it's violent and it, it definitely stirred something to make me go like whoa okay this isn't good like he's not he's definitely not praising this moment he hates like he's showing how much this is terrible
1: yeah, and I, I, love, I love that you mentioned um, you know the kids in the train there's a lot of ways in which it's like a violence about like humanity should be more than this like you've You've harmed what it is to be human Hmm. Uh, And so they've literally just become cogs in a machine yeah, you know and and the fact that people have sacrificed arms and legs or we just cut off an arm as a punishment or things like that of We are cutting people apart and we're doing harm to who they are Um, Early on with the violinist whose wife is also a violinist and they only want one violinist which they don't say why but later um, did you notice that violin that he plays only has one string on it? Yeah. Of like they don't need a second violinist because they don't have a second violin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and so once they don't have need for you, break her hand, show off the fact that we don't need you, and you can't even
0: do this. You can't do it now. Yeah.
1: And so there's a lot of they violence. Do that. They do that a lot. Yeah.
2: So the way they kind of symbolize the their entire story with the um, the fish and the sushi scene. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but. You can only... They only eat sushi once per year.
1: yeah, Or I twice think, per, yeah, twice I per year. I think it was
2: January and July. Yeah. And that's because they're killing off the population at that point in order to maintain an, a balanced ecosystem. And so they give away that that plot thread, you know, right there and then. That that's what they're doing. Is there, And if you look at, like, the times that they're having revolts and everything, it matches up with when they're killing the fish. Which, for the fish... I was like, well, that seems fine, you know, that's just a part, like, we, they gotta balance that ecosystem, or else the ecosystem's gonna destroy itself, but then when it came to humans, I was like, I don't know if I can rationalize that, though, (laughs) you know, and, uh, it it just became, I, I really didn't want to rationalize that, and I was, like, fighting back, like, like, why, why is, why are they, what, what would make someone think that that's okay with humans, like, we're not fish, we're not this ecosystem that's going to destroy itself like what i wonder what where that thought process came from and is that just like supposed to be a humanistic view of like will science make sense or is it supposed to be this idea because obviously the writer's saying that that guy was wrong right or was he trying to make a question i don't know and that's the hard part is i think that sometimes in art we we don't want to give an answer for our question so i would i would really wish that maybe he would have stuck a little bit harder there at the end to say like what was right and what was wrong in his view at least uh the writer's view because uh that's hard for me to, to say like oh well they, they could have both been right a little bit right no killing a bunch of humans is wrong like, i don't care how you rationalize it man so, I don't know. That 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 part really stuck with me. That that violence in the fish scene, right? Of how I'm I'm okay with having to kill fish. It's going to like prolong the life of the humans if they do that. But like killing the humans to prolong the life of humans? That doesn't make any sense. You're you're killing humans. You're not prolonging their life at that point.
0: It's also the theme of just about every bad guy in like the last 5 years of movie. Like Thanos is the same thing. Yeah. Kingsman is the same thing like for some reason we just keep coming back to the story of well the way to change our problems is to kill a bunch of people you know as like uh, it's just interesting how that becomes like the humanistic like solution to bad guys these days which to increase the level of anxiety
1: is an element of something going on in Revelation right I mean it like why the death Mm -hmm. Like, it is built into us to think there's a certain amount of cleansing that has to happen or something like that. And that's a little bit traumatic of, like, what is happening here. And I think most people who are trying to get around that anxiety um, take an anti-violence kind of uh, reading to Revelation and say, okay, we're all metaphorical here. Um, So nothing actually is happening. That, you know, the sword of the mouth, we take all these cues as symbolism Mm -hmm. It's not actually the death that's happening in the story it's it's something more symbolic um, and i can't remember i think it's um susan highland has an article on revelation where she kind of pushes people to say okay we can have a reading that sounds like this is metaphorical and it's not actually violent but what happens when we use metaphors is people think in those metaphors so if i use enough violent metaphor imagery my adherents will think violently and they will live violently. And so it doesn't necessarily clear us of anything just to mention the fact that well, it's not really actual violence or something like that, but it's yeah. still creating a violent mindset. Um, and I do think it's hard for people to imagine a scenario in which there's not some level of violence in this overthrow or change of society and, you know, to use Paul's language of just, well, how did we get to every knee bowing, or or every, you know, like how did we get to this moment where everybody's all on the same page? And most imagination ends up with some level of violence, um, whether that's metaphorical or literal. Um, but I think that anxiety still is in our own tradition that Jesus, I think pushes against, Mm. you know, don't burn the cities down. You know, like, like (laughs) why are you jumping to this? You know, you were way too quick at that. You know, um, And so, but I think that tension still exists even within our own tradition, even if you go away from scriptures to just the history of the church. Mm. um, How do we retake the Holy Land, you know, of
0: we only can think in violent ways. Yeah, and uh, the thing that keeps coming to my mind uh, when you keep talking about numbers and whatnot is technically in Revelation, you know, you've got the people in the altar, the martyrs are like, when you're gonna do something? He's like mm-hmm. waiting for the number to be complete. But like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. If it's a perfect analogy. I don't know that he's thinking like. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. That passage in general is confusing. Though you see Jesus at the end, seeming, in my opinion, to say like the number is complete now. When he's got like a robe dipped in blood that I think for him is like the martyr's blood. Like, all right, it's time to do something about this. But, um, yeah, I'm that's been kind of that tension you're talking about has been one that I've been trying to sort out. We just preached through revelation at our church. And this was like, I had done a Bible study on it beforehand. Felt like I felt a little better about it. Now I'm preaching through it, reading mostly really only scholars trying to figure out what they're, they're saying. Cause there's a lot of crazy stuff. out <laughs> there. And what was helpful for me is like all the violence that I kept seeing was like, my conundrum wasn't with the fact that there was violence it was trying to understand like who am i attributing the violence to and what's going on here and usually for me i usually felt like uh, you know the martyrs are the one taking on the brunt of most of the violence here and yeah there are some moments of god and his judgment with plagues and whatnot but usually those seem an attempt to like turn people towards him not away um but yeah when you come across those themes there is that temptation, like eh, it just tosses out the window, and not under. Uh, and then there's a, the temptation at the same time to like uh, embrace it too violent or embrace it as it appears without looking for that like deeper look into it. And maybe we're not fully on Snowpiercer. Anymore. No, no, I actually, I actually think this comes back to
2: Snowpiercer a lot because. In the end we see in revelation a lot that violence isn't always just against like non-believers right you have the martyrs that are taking on what you said a lot like the brunt force of a lot of the violence um and and we see it kind of portrayed in snowpiercer kind of in a similar way i will say with chris evans um finally losing his arm again right with him giving up his arm and giving up his life later on to save two remaining people and to say that these children that he would have eaten in the past, you know, it's it's grotesque, it's violent. He's going to save them now. And even though it is a, there is a very small chance that these kids will survive. His hope is that in his death, they can, they can have a better life. Hmm. And I think that that speaks like bounds for me as to like, um, just how we should live our lives, hoping that, uh, that in those moments that we could be, that kind of a martyr that we could be the person that that helps life move in a better direction, right?
0: Mm.
1: So, yeah, it, I mean, they don't ever use. I don't feel like they use the language of martyrdom, but there's yeah. a whole lot of martyrdom yeah. in the story of Snowpiercer, and you know, they they did use a lot of religious kind of language and overtones. And I can't remember what yeah. they used to describe the sacrifice, and maybe they just even sacrifice, but there was a saint-like quality that they gave to you know, Gilliam yeah. and those who were willing to risk or lose their arms. Mm. And I almost thought, um, in that confession scene with Curtis, that when he talks about you know, Gilliam takes the knife and people thought he was going to kill the baby with the knife, it feels a little bit like Abraham and Isaac, you know, of like, what am I going to do here? And instead he cuts his own arm off instead of harming the other person.
0: So I'm glad they didn't put that scene in because... How long does it take you to cut your own Yeah, I think it works better. as We'd see
2: that nowadays, right? Like, they would make sure to put that weird, grotesque scene in of them, like, eating a baby or something. They would do that nowadays just to kind of, like, get that that point across that, oh, this is so gross and so terrible and they just want to show that violence. But hearing someone say it and it just be this scene where an actor has to do their best to portray... This terrible thing that they did.
0: Emotionally. Yeah. yeah,
2: emotionally. Man, it made me like... I was tearing up like, holy crap, man. Yep. And now this guy led a revolt for these people. Like, they followed him after that. Mm. Like, they trusted him enough. He was working for them enough after that for them to follow him. For the person that, that showed him the way, like, to go that way, Gillian. Uh, Gillian, I forget his last part of his name. But... For him to even put his trust in him and say like, dude, you're you're the leader, and he's, you start to understand why he was like, no, I don't want this, I, I can't do this, I I'm obviously not chosen for this, um, he almost seems again biblically, he almost seems like some of the chosen of God, where they're like, what do you mean, I murdered Christians, guys, I I can't lead them, and God's like, N- no, yeah, you can,
0: and you got that slain lamb slain lamb effect where you know. The one that actually turns his life around, ultimately it wasn't violence, it was the guy who was willing to take on a bunch of oppression on himself for the sake of changing his life around. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh,
1: You know, one thing that you mentioned then was um, what the storyteller chooses to show you and doesn't show. Yeah. And and I agree that's such a powerful image of just Chris Evans sitting there confessing and, and being broken in that moment. In the movie, some of the most truth telling accuracy of what's happening on the train is from the artist, the artist who keeps drawing pictures, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is the best historian of the whole train like he you see pictures of the uprisings kind of in his collection of artwork on the wall, and he's remembered these children who were taken, and other people don't necessarily always remember the kids and have moved on and don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, But when they get to the locusts or grasshoppers or whatever, he's startled. He's the first one to see it. He's the one looking around for what to see. And Curtis gets up there and he looks at it and he's about to kind of throw up or something. He's getting nauseous thinking about it. And he tells the artist, don't draw this. Mm -hmm. And the artist agrees. But like there is that kind of horrific of maybe some images are too much and I can't show you. It's too power, too painful. Yeah. Which is really interesting. and. You know, I think Snowpiercer does a good job of another element of the apocalyptic genre is the importance of the seer, the person who has visions, who sees things. So obviously, with that artist, yeah, the way that they see reality. Um, but even more so with uh, Namgoom's daughter, Yo- uh, Yona. Yona? Yeah. She's like Chris Evans. Which this might have been the only part that felt like on the nose. <laughs> He's like, are you clairvoyant? You know, like, yeah, (laughs) I was like, oh, wow. He just kind of throws that out there and they don't deal a whole lot with it. They just kind of want to name the fact that she can see things.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And usually it's not helping. It's so close to the time that it happens that it doesn't change anything. So she's like, yeah, you can go through or this guy's kind of running towards you and it's not actually somebody that's dangerous. And um, it was that guy that in that food room that he jumps up and he's holding that valve Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of like random interesting information but when he confronts her about being clairvoyant that she can see things she's looking past the door and she then screams like lock the gate don't open it and it's the the war is about to happen the hooded soldiers are on the other side but her dad has just tripped the wire the door opens and so it didn't stop them But She can see things, but ultimately I think the payoff and all of that because they let it go for a long while is that Curtis is being kind of (laughs) worm-tongued into uh, I'm gonna be the head of this train I'm gonna do all the things that I hated which is the temptation of every single revolution I'm gonna become the thing that I hate and he's almost there until she points out look down and this whole movie has been going Kind of side to side. She so like looked down, and it's finding the kids in the engine. Yeah. And I think that's like the huge role of the prophet, of the the seer, the social oh, justice yeah. image yeah. of look at what no one wants to see, look at what's going on here, and confront this reality. And I think that's, I think that's the payoff of that storyline. Um, there's actually another seer, so I'd say the third one is her dad, cause Nam every time they're around windows, he's the one looking out the windows and looking for a world beyond this train. Yeah. And that's ultimately what changes the whole story is that he does have an ability to look for something beyond it and, um, in society you get so stuck into your battles, especially in this duality us versus them, front versus the back of the train. And Nam the only one who's actually willing to look somewhere else. And I thought it was so beautifully done with um, when Curtis is confessing to him. And Nam before they get into Wilford's cabin at the front yeah. of the train, he's like, what are you going to do in there? You know, like, mm-hmm. you've wanted this your whole life. But, like, why do you want to go in this door so much? And he confesses all of these awful, terrible things. He's like, for 18 years, this is the only thing I've wanted to do is to take this train. And basically he just wants to kill the one who's caused so much harm. And I'm going one I love that he said like he says he thanks him for telling his story. Yeah. And he says something to him cuz Chris Evans says open the gate. Again, it was like the second time he said it. And he's and he says I'm not going to open the gate. I'm going to open the gate. Yeah. <laughs> and Chris Evans is like you are crazy. And he's like, no, it's just—it's not that one. It's this one. And the camera angle pans. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I love that
1: imagery of, you've been going this way. Let me turn you. And he's like, you might think this is a wall, but this is a door. And I think there's something so powerful of those people who can look in the world and say, you, you're not seeing this. There's another door here. And mm-hmm. there's another way. And I think that's a, a big portion of what an apocalyptic story or an apocalypse can do is tell people it feels like you're forced into the scenario, but there's actually another way and take this other door. Um, It's not just about pain or it's not just about trying to get revenge, but there's a different way forward. So I feel like the, the seers of this story are all very powerful and like maybe overlooked, like in the midst of the story, there's a lot of violence and action. But those who have the ability to see are really important to the story.
2: I think it's strange, too, that the door to, like, Wilford's room looks like a wall. And the door to the outside world looks like a door. And it's so, like, obvious that that's, that's the way, like, if you want to stop this cycle from happening, that's the way to do it, right? And it's, it's obvious, but the only the person that, you're, you're right, the only person that was doing it was seeing a future that was in front of them. It was there to see. No one was hiding that from them. But he was kind of the only person that wanted to see that reality, wanted to see a different world come, you know, from what they had, even if it meant them dying, because there had it was a risk. He was willing to take it because it meant that there wasn't going to be this this hierarchy. There wasn't going to be this duality anymore. It was going to be we all have to survive now. We all have to go out and try to do try to rebuild a broken world.
0: I was thinking too about how. You know, when, once you're thinking of these people kind of as prophets, if you will, seeing the real truth and and whatnot, uh, I was thinking of kind of the train taking on its own, just like this is Lady Babylon. You know, yeah. the whole thing has its own classes, martyrs, and uh, there's this kind of beast at the front of it who doesn't look so bad once you finally get to him. He's like maybe the only level-headed Person on the train, like that's part of the difficulty. When you finally get to the bad guy, you're like, you really want to like, <laughs> just be mad at him instead. He's like, even like, I'll put power into your own hands. This redemptive character is a temptation of Satan and Jesus almost right there. Mm-hmm. you can have the power and be in charge, and and maybe you'll do it the right way while you work for me, type thing. But. There's that whole section in Revelation where John just lists like all of the different kinds of things that Babylon has in it the gold, the silver, the jewels, the pearls. And uh, there's a, uh, I think it's Gordon Fee, like uh, the, uh, there's in his commentary, Gordon Fee talks about like, here's where this came from and this came from and all these nations, like you can see, just like Rome is like, fueled by all this stuff and it's uh uh, sleeping around almost with all the other nations to create this great beast or babylon there or uh the great prostitute if you will but like his last thing he lists is human souls you know and that's like the that's a social justice prophet right there that you're always looking for in the old testament and then it just like (laughs) that's one of the most painful parts of of Revelation for me because I'm like oh gosh how how many times is there a kid below my deck making my clothes or whatever putting together the just treated like a cog in the wheel how many kids around this world are literally like born into hell on earth live in hell on earth for their entire lives and then probably die a short life in hell on earth because I've not acknowledge the, the way that Babylon works around me, or the way that the train works around me, and I think that's that's one of the weirdest parts of this movie is when you get to the middle section. Like, yeah, there's there's some parts in the middle section where they like freak out and try to like kill you uh, for your revolt, but there's also moments where they just like seem oblivious to like, oh, mm-hmm. uh, are the poor people? Yeah, whatever, continue party, and you know it's like and some of them like. You can tell that they're
1: making a smell response, yeah. Yeah. which really felt like Parasite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but they're like, oh, there were the people from the back of the train, oh, this the stinks. Mm-hmm. And um, both there, and there it was very subtle, mm-hmm. but Parasite, he definitely builds that up. But that there's a kind of an aura, there's a presence, that there's, there's something that lingers with you and the stench of the injustices kind of follows you and you can't necessarily get away from it very easily, even though people like Gilliam are like, Hey, wash yourselves, wash the blood off. And you, they try, but it's hard to get out of that. And, and you know, for these kids who have grown up in these engines, who have kept the you know Babylon going, some of the best case scenarios is you're getting the offer Curtis gets. You know, if you're the 1% of those yep. people being mistreated, that you get to become the person who then mistreats everybody else, and and that's kind of that the recognition, the recognition that the system is so flawed that there's no tiny change needed, and that's where apocalyptic comes in. Of you need a massive change. <laughs> <laughs> the system is not just needing a course re- yeah. recalibration. Yeah, you have to actually knock it off of the train tracks, mm. and. I think it's so interesting to look at Israelite kind of history of how their thought process changes of when we've been destroyed and defeated, well, we've done something wrong, let's figure out how to do something right. But after enough empires come through, eventually they're like, we're kind of just powerless here of like, these these empires are too painful and too violent. And... God has to step in like it it's no longer just about me like though I still need to take care of my own stuff but somebody's got to set things right because it's it's so far off and you need those seers you need those people to help you see that the system is so far off that there's no redemption that can you imagine that there's kids underneath you or that and and we saw an old an older version of that earlier in the train when the guy in the food room jumps up and he's like it has to be manual, the parts are broken, you know, like, yeah. we, we already got the hint that the people are the equipment now, but we can handle that better than when you see the four-year-old or five-year-old doing it, um, but it's still painful or traumatic that... Doing the motion that they
2: were talking about throughout the entire movie, he was... Like, they, I don't know, like, you didn't know why they were doing this motion of, like, grabbing something, pulling it, and then putting something back. But it's supposed to be that cog. You're the cog in our machine
1: kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. That's so, uh, that's chilling. And I think, you know, to use the Revelation imagery about Babylon, I think the people on the train would definitely grieve the loss of, I mean, the cataclysmic event doesn't allow for much thought, time, and, yeah, response. Mm-hmm. But like when you hear the classroom of kids being indoctrinated into the train and stuff like they very much love the train Mm -hmm. They don't want to lose the train and even Curtis (laughs) Who's been abused by the system for so long still doesn't see it when Nam Gung is like I'm gonna blow this door He's like are you crazy? Mm -hmm. You're gonna kill us all like He still takes it as a given that this train is the protection. It is Mm -hmm. good Even though there's probably no scenario which it ever actually live up to that
2: yeah Yeah. one of the um one of the dynamics that i kind of wanted to jump back to was um the gilliam wilford and curtis like thing that was going on so in the end we kind of hear from wilford that you know oh well i've been working with gilliam this entire time this was all set up this is all a ruse and you know it was all to get you into power because i'm getting old and you're gonna have to do the same thing that I did this entire time. You're gonna have to slaughter millions of people, you know, throughout your entire lifetime because he wasn't that old. And you're gonna have to, uh, you're gonna have to go through these grotesque like scenes. And you're gonna have to do all the things that I did. These children are gonna have to be cogs in your machine as well. You're gonna have to deal with that. And he's like, and on top of that, the guy that you trusted, Gilliam, well, uh, he he knew all of this and he was working with me. And I always kind of wanted to question that because that kind of gives me that like. You know that because I know it doesn't fit the characters perfectly for a lot of reasons, but like Curtis kind of takes on this this Jesus role in that moment, while Wilfer takes on this satanic role um, of saying like, look, this entire world, the train can be yours. All you have to do is you know agree to doing the things that I would do, right? It's all good. And oh, also you know this is what this is what the guy who taught you everything would want too, buddy and to me it's like yeah we saw the phone there they were obviously communicating back and forth from the front and the back of the train but that in no way means that because we see him the entire time he says do not listen to him do not do not let him talk to you you need cut to kill, his tongue out. cut his tongue out as soon as you meet him right because i think he knew he wanted this revolt to be the end of the of revolts right he didn't want to see the violence to continue he didn't want people to have to live the way that they were he saw that the train could still be a protection right i think that there was still that like hope in gilliam's eyes of like this train is protection for us and i I think that uh that's like there's multiple people with different like ideas right but he was telling curtis like look he basically in that moment where he's like don't talk to him cut his tongue out he's saying. I've been in communication with this guy. This guy is gonna a liar. He's a cheat. He's going to try to trick you into doing what he wants you to do. Don't let him. And in that moment, that kind of tells me that when Wilford's like, "Oh yeah, he was working with me the entire time. We're best buds, man." That's kind of a very a satanic moment of like Satan going, "No, God would want this. he you want you to do this?" Like kind of like in the screw tape letter kind of thing where it kind of twists your idea around uh, from C.S. Lewis, um, where like the the demonic figure can slowly get you to change your mind on how that how what you perceive as a sin, right? And that's what he was doing the entire time. He's like, "Oh, but look, you know, there's overpopulation happens. It's really bad. We we need to kill all these people in order to maintain a balance, right, man? It's cool." Also, you know, the the ship the, the thing's dying. I know I said it's a perpetual motion machine, but like Sometimes the perpetual motion breaks. You just got to throw some children in there. Like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And that, that kind of moment for me really symbolizes uh, that that way that Jesus was being tempted. You know, this world can be yours if only you do all the terrible things that I want you to do.
0: Yeah. Well, the reality of it from the prophetic views this whole things falling apart. Let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. It, it reminded me of... Um, nazi
1: germany's tactics of getting a persecuted group to police themselves so they would um, put jewish people in a ghetto put people in charge and say i need x number of people if you don't give me x number of people i'm going to take even more people you know and so then you've created this ugly scenario in which people are holding certain people accountable and saying you know why did you go along and work with this terrible group it didn't save anybody it didn't do anything you know but when faced with could i save anybody today yeah you're put in a terrible situation you're on a terrible train track right you know and the imagery maybe of the train i don't know whether bong Jun ho necessarily would i don't know whether he intends to go holocaust as any sort of imagery here yeah um but i think that that that's Styler tactic was definitely present there. Uh, it
2: invokes it for sure. Like when I see these people being loaded onto a train, that's what he talked about. You know, they didn't give us any food for two months, and we resorted to eating each other. Man, that that yeah, that's that's some Holocaust stuff. You know.
0: And I just saw uh, I just saw this a few weeks ago. I I missed it on the train, but I saw it in a video game. I was playing a uh, Ghost of Tsushima, <laughs> in which the Mongols come in and they're kind of wiping out. Uh, the island of Tsushima, and so the Japanese samurai are rising up out Anyways, there's a side mission that I came across. And this father's grieving, and the reason why is because the Mongols came to his house and told him, like, you know, choose what kid you want to live. We're going to kill the other one. It's like, if you don't, we'll kill them both. And it's like, you know, the father ultimately commits suicide after this Side mission because, like, he doesn't know how to deal with it, but like, that's the like he looks at himself as the bad guy when the truth is it's that Babylon outside of it, like what it's done. Like, no one should have been in that situation mm-hmm. in the first place. Uh, my analogy was going to be like what I was thinking. I was like, this is politics. It's like you're going to have Republicans and lose a bunch of stuff you love, or you can have Democrats and lose a bunch of stuff you love. Here's the gun to your head, choose one we'll kill the other one for the next four years. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm like, well, this is the machine that's broken.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the train itself is a corrupting force. Yeah. You know, and and I think we mentioned earlier how much corruption is just throughout everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's something about the system itself breeds that. And, and it's not, it can't be easily redeemed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The attention again needs to focus Mm-hmm. Somewhere else, and I don't know. There's a lot of that, just prophetic, that the church, I think, in general, in our day and age right now, just has to have that kind of seer moment to say, "Where's Jesus?" and how can we turn our attention from where we keep putting it yeah. to to blowing the side off the train? <laughs> well, and
1: in our context, you know, it, it's not like you mentioned; it's not necessarily a Republican or Democratic thing. Is we've had. Camps with kids being taken away from split from families or things like that at the border Uh, Those kinds of things You know, maybe change in severity or in number or things like that over time, but have been something around that's been around for Mm -hmm. longer than we want to look at and There are plenty of things that if we were to look and look at them we would be horrified by and We maintain order by not looking. Yeah but all it does is maintain the, the chaos and the violence
0: that it that it brings. And that's that middle-class part of the train, you know? Mm-hmm. Just where you're oblivious to everything else going on everywhere, yeah. One
1: of the other things I think is important with any apocalyptic story is you need some weird imagery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If you don't have some weird imagery somewhere, yeah, yeah. you're missing out because this genre says some weird imagery is a very good thing to use. So I, I, I think that that fish gutting or slicing scene is one of those of it feels completely unnecessary right of just you could do the movie without it right but there's something scary and and weird about it and randomly he's going to trip over the fish later in the scene and like it's the interesting part and i have to tell a backstory of this fish harvey weinstein wanted to cut the fish part out of the movie Hmm. and so that was one of the things he told bong joon ho he's like i the fish, it's weird. We don't need it. <laughs> and uh, director Bong Joon-ho said, The fish is really important to me. It's a family thing. My dad was a fisherman. I really need this scene. And he said that Harvey Weinstein said, Why didn't you say that earlier? Family is the most important thing. Nobody, he told all the editors, Don't touch the fish. <laughs> and Bong Joon-ho said, My dad was a graphic artist.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so for me, like, I don't know, that fish scene was really interesting to me, though, because I thought, you know, why are they doing this, like, why are they doing this with the fish? And then I thought about it for a second. I'm like, wait, like, uncooked fish and, like, going in directly into your bloodstream Probably is a little poisonous. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm trying to... I remember the scene vaguely, but for some reason it's escaping me. This is what the bad they're all guy hooded. is. Yeah, they're
2: yeah. all hooded and they just start cutting in. Okay,
0: I think it was just so weird. I'm just like, well, I don't know what to do with that. And just like <laughs> tune it out or and something. And then
1: randomly Chris Evans trips and falls on the fish. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's such a weird thing. And I think when he falls, is that what leads to Edgar getting trapped? Because there's two moments that happen. One of the people in the back of the bus has tattooed surrender or die. Yeah. And he asks, uh, I forget the character, but one of the the front of the train kind of folks. And he says he wants to surrender and nobody else wants to. And so they just let him die. And the front chooses to die. Like, we're going to keep fighting. And then they capture Edgar. And they let Chris Evans have to decide surrender or die. And he chooses to go after the the minister uh, instead of saving his friend. But in the midst of that, he takes the tumble and he's kind of all the fighting's happening around him because yeah. of this, this random fish. fish. I don't know if it's fish out, fish out of water. I don't know which kind of <laughs> <laughs> images it's trying to evoke. Um, but I think there should be something weird and off-putting and strange. And um, there's definitely a lot of those images. And I think some of them are very intentional of the only masked people, so that masked attack that happens there uh it's that and the kids in the classroom they're the only people masked in the whole movie and so somehow the masked kids end up being the masked warriors you know that how do they get to this point in which they'll just do this brutality and kill people
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they've they've been raised into it you know yeah. and, and you see it and the weird answers they give in that classroom
0: mm-hmm.
1: um i forget some of the things that they say in that classroom scene but it's they're very matter of fact about like that the, the Tale of the Train is terrible. Yeah. And remember the minister who's trying to keep her life is like,
2: oh, no, no, they're, they're wonderful. They're so great. They're that lady <laughs> did nice a people.
0: great job. Is that is that the witch from Narnia? Yeah. Yeah, Tilda Swinton. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even notice because she did such a good job at just being exactly what I expected that lady to kind of mm-hmm. come across. So I Googled really quick. Supposedly the fish was supposed to be like a some cultures when they're getting ready for a fight, they might like take blood and put it on mm-hmm. their face or something. He wanted his own creepy like intimidation tactic. I mean cutting but fish is He like added it into the storyboards sure. as he was going on or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, there is still that like And Revelation has a lot of scenes that like are kind of grotesque or like it's meant to make you stop and be like, wait, now what? <laughs> you know, like why is there a Evil lamb beast, <laughs> <with> <laughs> trying to look like Jesus but clearly is not, and, and all these things, yeah. And even if you were to
1: try to like draw scenes in Revelation, sometimes it gets just bizarre. You're <laughs> like, wait, how? Would yeah,
0: that I remember in college, my professor threw up on the screen like Jesus with the sword, tongue, and stars in his hands. Like, that's what he looks like? <laughs> like. When he comes back, I'll recognize that. <laughs> I
1: thought Tilda Swinton did a great job as the minister. Um, Yeah. yeah. I like some of this weird, stark imagery of like when she randomly takes her teeth out at one scene. You know, just there's so many kind of absurd looking kind of moments. But she was trying to play like a Margaret Thatcher kind of British style figure. But they were talking about they were trying to take from like different kind of dictators and these different figures that they realized are we take them as being serious and as scary but are usually comical like Mm. there's a comical aspect to being able to think you're that all that or something you know just yeah and so they're playing that up of these scary figures are actually not scary they're but it's weird that it becomes scary yeah (laughs) through through how weird it is but she did a great job of you could tell that she believed that order mattered, but also that she was wormy enough that she was going to kind of try to figure out how to survive. Yeah.
2: Well, I think that kind of went to everybody, right? Like this, this idea of like order matters when it benefits me, but as soon as it's not benefiting me, then I have to do what I need to to survive. And it's just kind of like this, this idea that, especially the people in the front. Well, I thought it was strange that the guy that you were talking about, the guy that got killed... Um, like the, the surrender or die guy. He was like sy- sympathetic with the, the people in the back of the train a little bit, you know? He was like, oh, this doesn't seem right. And I thought they were gonna go somewhere with that when I was watching it. but then yeah, no, he just gets killed and I'm like, wow, you know, most movies don't let that guy just die. normally he he'd like turn and then fight with them or something. No, he th- he died for a cause that he didn't really believe in and that's that's sad, you
0: know. <laughs> Yeah, one of the other things I was thinking too is where you see kind of that Babylon overlapping and even modern day overlapping is you have the kids indoctrinated almost into this like Pledge of Allegiance before we Mm -hmm. start what we're doing uh, to the train and um, everybody, the train's talked about as sacred, It's, it's the sacred engine and everything's religified within the train even though like... As as the seer outside, you're just like, What is wrong with you people? Like it's a piece of technology, you know, but like once you put it into that Babylon spin or even this America spin of like I pledge allegiance to this thing and this thing is God's thing and it's happening, and God's like, I didn't make that, I don't wanna have it. I mean, what piece of this did I make except the humans you're abusing within it? You know, it's just like oh, there's volumes there from Revelation of Let go of the beast or come out of her, you know, this like leave Babylon behind and and come to to me and and follow me. So that it speaks volumes when you watch a movie like that, like the sacred thing is a piece of metal, and you're like, "Mm." yeah, right, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And I think it
1: matters the perspective of who's telling the story, you know, of like you're blind if you're in certain parts of the train to realizing that. Babylon, such a bad place and things like that and I think an apocalyptic story has to be told by someone that's not in power it doesn't make sense to me to tell an apocalyptic story if you're in power yep. you're going to tell a story in which God's going to overthrow the the powers. like it if you have power you're just like here let me figure out how to change things a little bit or something mm-hmm. it's just it tends to come out of uh, people that have no power or very little power and to affect anything in the world. Um, like a man exiled on an island. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think you know, in a lot of like kind of the Greek period when Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth or whoever might be ruling you harshly, it's in the face of that persecution that you want to tell these stories. And so I think that Snowpiercer in part works even more for me because Uh, Bong Joon-ho coming in from a Korean perspective into the midst of a global conversation is a little bit more interesting or more truthful maybe or has better perception Than maybe from some other voices trying to tell the story and it's really telling to me that You know Nam-gung and his daughter You don't know they're the main actors or the main central part of the story. Yeah, they're hidden throughout basically almost but They're put into a story that is surrounded by powerful white people. Mm -hmm. Whether it's Curtis or Gilliam in the back, who are played by, like, you know, you've got American or British actors primarily. And the front is also these white figures. They're primarily speaking English, but they mention the fact that the train has multiple languages, and that's why they've got these translator devices. And yet, when Minister Mason's like, "We don't have time. I've got seven minutes to there's, give my speech there's like 12 here." Twelve people oh, there. Yeah. yeah. Stop translating. <laughs> people should know my language, you know. And that it's a it's a protest kind of form of literature to tell an apocalypse. And um, these characters who end up being the ones who can see are not coming from the place of power that some of the other figures are, are operating in. And whether it's the front or the back of the bus of who's going to kind of vie to take over that power spot, neither one is Namgun. you know, he, yeah. <laughs> he's just the kind of person that's overlooked, uh, who has a different way and a different path ahead than the other powerful figures. And I think maybe Tilda Swinton's performance and her trying to imitate certain figures who had power really bring that home, um, and I don't and I think this makes it hard, you know, you were mentioning earlier that there's so much weird revelation literature out there. Yeah. It is very hard for majority and power American Christians to appreciate or understand the book of Revelation. Like, and we see so many people trying to map persecution on themselves in situations that <laughs> oh. it is definitely a stretch. Mm, yeah. And I think it is that frame of reference. And what is it to tell an apocalypse yeah. as a people that have pretty good power and influence?
0: Yeah, likewise people in power and influence reading Revelation have an entirely different understanding from what the guy exiled on an island meant to say, you know? And it's kinda of like the that book of Eli, you know, in, in that movie, just like give me the Bible. It frames what I believe, and I can take whatever verses I want to make it say what I want. Whereas uh, you take Revelation from a power standpoint, it's like, we will become the, the beast, basically, is more or less like how it oftentimes gets translated. I mean, nobody thinks they'll become the beast, but the way in which they infuse it into the beast is like for Christians to become the new beast or, mm-hmm. or something like that. It's just very strange. Yeah.
1: And it's interesting how people latch onto which image of Jesus in the story. Oh, yeah. And like the riding figure mm-hmm. becomes a stronger one than the lamb. Yeah, You know, and it is that gravitation to wanting that power. Which is weird when you already have it. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know, it's, <laughs> it's such a weird way of, of doing it. So maybe American audiences... I know that Weinstein's a part of the story of why it didn't get a widespread American release. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if the story... Wouldn't resonate very well in part because we have a hard time appreciating or understanding that kind of story Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think Americans are just generally um, Unaware of their place in the world and where we are kind of like we're not uh, No matter where you are in America, even our even our homeless have like better situations than the homeless when I was in Cambodia the, they're poor they're people that we would consider living in like trailer parks and stuff like that we're in houses smaller than this room that we're currently in which is maybe you, you know you, you could fit maybe like most people's living room into this room right um it's it's telling that in america we don't understand like obviously there there is still trouble there are still things that we need to fix and like in this cu- country um but we don't understand where we are on that, like, world scale as much as the other countries do because, like you said, they're not in the place of power. We're the one that that has $3 trillion in our military spending to make sure that we maintain that power. And we tell this story of how we – we as Americans, we tell these stories of how we will fight for our freedom. We're going to uh, do whatever it takes to maintain our, our freedom, quote-unquote, freedom. Um but it's really just us maintaining the way of life that we know, and uh, that's why we see it on the political spectrum. Um, what the rest of the world views as their left, left-leaning left and right-leaning is like what is considered a true liberal in <laughs> America. Um, conservative uh, in the rest of the world isn't what conservative is in America. And uh, that's, that's really interesting when you start to look at world powers and where the rest of the world is compared to where America is. We're very much stuck on... That, that old American tale of this country tried to oppress us. We're the underdogs that, that come out victorious every time, right? So we like to view ourselves as the person without power that gains power. I'm a self-made person. I took this. I took everything that I have, I worked for, which isn't true at all. Um, even me, I come from uh, my, my father lived in a trailer park. I lived with him for a while. Um, my mother wasn't very wealthy or anything like that. Uh, I'm in a ton of debt. Everything that I was, get, got though, everything that I got in life partially had to do with my skin color, partially had to do with the things that I was given, um, just for, from my grandparents, uh, were very nice and were able to help me out through a lot of my life. Um, my mom tried her best. And eventually, I got to go to college. And once I got into college, life completely changed for me. Now I'm a college-educated white male in America, and I could pretty much do anything I wanted. Um, so, and like, yeah, I have debt. I have things I have to do, but I'm not ever worried about where am I where am I going to get food. I'm not ever worried about um, how am I going to get from place to place. I have transportation. I'm never worried about how things are going. To, how I'm going to get through the next week. You know, I know I'm going to. I know I can. I know I have the choice to do so. And I think it, that's for a lot of Americans, that's where we're at. You know, there are some. When I was younger, I, I didn't always know where my meal was gonna come from. But there are some that um that have that. But the majority of America comes from a place of extreme wealth and we don't even realize it. Um when we see people making upwards of, you know, a hundred K a year kind of a thing, um that is extraordinary wealth compared to the rest of the world. You know, people don't just make that much money because, they, because they're just doing a job, right? Which we can make that much money just doing a job in America. They don't in other countries. That's extreme wealth. And yeah, there are people who obviously make millions and billions of dollars, but those are very small amounts of the population compared to the average citizen of a country. You know, Um, and that's why when we view minimum wages and stuff like that, it starts to change things. But that that plays into you have to look at that. You have to look at the politics of the world, and where you are to be able to relate yourself yourself into revelation, right? And to relate how we're going to perceive revelation, like you were saying. So I, I think that Americans really have this bad view of. Of what Revelation is supposed to be. We view it because, we, like you said, we want to revolt. We want to be the underdogs who come back and take what, what is ours, what is supposed to be ours. Um, where Revelation seems to say, you know, okay, yeah, take what's yours. You're, you're owed death. And Jesus decided to give you life. You know? Jesus is outstretching his hand to give you life. You're, you, you deserve death, though. You're owed death. In this world, you will die. You're not owed life. So if we want to take what we deserve, that's what we're going to get. If we want to give up all we have in order to receive life, you know, we're offered that.
1: Wilford kind of takes on the responsibility and the, I don't know, the the power of this of this train. And we get to see that he even complains about his place in the train, which Good. I <laughs> love that Chris Evans's character at, at first is just calling BS on that of like... Come on, you know, like, yep. like who wouldn't trade places with you is the kind of his thing about it of he's like, you know, it's lonely up here and other people can't even get a space where they ever can even feel Yeah, solitary like be by themselves for a moment or something like that um, He's having a steak and you know He can kind of ignore that there's kids living in his shelves and underneath him and whatnot um, But even he can complain about his situation in the world And he did set up this train, and you wonder like, from the get-go, he did make two different categories. He did make first class and economy. So like, even from the start, he didn't necessarily set this up to be an equal society. He had an opportunity to try to do something different than the world he had left, but he maintained it, probably, because you can benefit from it. I mean like, he's making a decision that's gonna affect himself. And the thing he didn't account for is, people breaking into the train and kind of make a you know, third group, those that you know snuck their way on the train and, and fought their way on the train. But he didn't... So it, it, even then, it was outside of his control. Like, his desire to be a godlike kind of figure was always faulty. It was never going to work. And I love the little hint when they talk about... They said something about the people around the world thought he was not very yeah. smart or that he was silly or whatever. I don't know. Like... They kind of ridiculed him, but the great Wilford, he knew and, you know, he made this great train and I got the feeling of there's so many people that are kind of the power figures in the world that are just completely, um, you know, they're not always the smartest person. Like they might have an area in which they are smart, but people are laughing and mocking them of how, how could you ever make this decision? Like it's hard not to insert your own political figures or whatever, but like you're like, wait. This person is comically bad about things and and just makes the wrong decisions. And I love that there's a little glimpse that that world kind of thinks that about Wilford. And so the people on the train think he's a god-type figure. (laughs) But he's also just not that. Mm -hmm. And he was never that. And even the system he tried to set up didn't actually work out the way that he wanted. And then he quickly learned his eternal train actually broken it's broken really (laughs) quickly you know and someone fires a gun in there and he's like what are you doing there's a engine (laughs) stop um so he really has even though he's the one with some level of control even he doesn't really have control and so the you know what would it be for curtis to actually to step into his role um you can only control it as long as you had the bullets in the story things like that and those are even getting scarce and so Everyone keeps trying to act like there's control and it's not quite there and um, I think that, to your point, I think Americans probably watching this movie, we definitely are very much into Chris Evans' character. We want to be the revolutionary who's the underdog, who has a redemption story, cause we <laughs> like that too, mm-hmm. you know, who wasn't perfect from the beginning, but he he got there, he overthrows, he takes over, he gets power, then like, and then what?
2: And
1: then he dies. Yeah. Like, and, I, <laughs> and I think that's what's so startling with Nomgum asking that kind of question of, this is the story you want. Mm-hmm. What would you even do with it? And I think that's the question of the audience is, for those who do have some level of control or power or decision-making or buying power or whatever it is, what world do you want? And I think that's the question where an apocalypse really factors in of like, talking to your audience, which way are you going to live? Are you gonna follow the beast and the power and the oppression, or are you gonna go a different route and kind of leave it to the audience to make their decision on how they wanna move forward in life um, knowing there's another option. And I think, I think that Snowpiercer, a benefit, or maybe where it can do this, maybe even a little bit stronger than other kinds of apocalypses is because it's a humanistic one. Like, the role is all on you. Like, you get to decide where this train goes or if it gets knocked off the tracks. Can't we just knock it off the tracks is kind of the question, you know. In the Jewish Christian tradition, there's still this, you choose to be faithful, but ultimately it's God who's going to come in and set things right. Um that doesn't mean we're necessarily passive, but you know, like, but there is an element of you don't have to be the ones to take the the violence onto your own hands, like like how Namgoong kind of protects Yona. Like, you don't have to do this. Um, someone else is going to do this overthrow, and I think that's one of the big kind of dis- differences between something like Snowpiercer yeah. and a revelation text. And I think it's the the War Scroll in Qumran where it kind of gives you more of the imagery of. Get your weapons together, mm-hmm. like the the final battles coming, and get yourself prepared. And you could probably still read that more metaphorically and say, "Get yourself prepared for this end of end of time or something like that." But I don't think Revelation is calling you to arms at all. No.
0: No. Yeah, that would be the major difference. Is in this one, you know, it's war in which they hope to overthrow it. But I think Walter Wink always did a good job with. Uh, this idea of, like, the domination system just creates a new domination system. And that, that's actually illustrated in Snowpiercing. Yeah, I think Snowpiercer. You've <laughs> dominated the system. Now you're in charge of the system. How will you dominate? Congratulations. You know? Whereas, like, <laughs> Revelation is ultimately about the end of the domination system of the beast. And a, recogni- a recognition that, like, you're living in it. And this is why I'm writing this letter. Be faithful. Because you live in the domination system. But you belong somewhere else outside the train, and they're going to kill you for that, you know. And hold true, nonetheless, I will take care of it eventually when the time is is here. Um, which had to be such an important question for them, because, you know, even Jesus' own words, I'll be back within 70 years. <laughs> I'll be back in a generation like, but it's past. Where is he? And John from the seer sidelines, he's coming still, but... It's going to suck for a little while, so mm-hmm. stay, stay faithful, and he will take care of it. But yeah, like you said, that doesn't mean passive, like don't make a difference, because the prophets, that was their job, was essentially like, I'm going to speak it out. We're going to make these changes, or you're going to kill me, one or the other. And that's what John's doing to the beast itself is, hey, uh, I'm here to speak into what's going on. You might kill me for this. If, he, if 666 did mean, you know, uh, um, uh, Emperor Nero, then, like, very clearly, like, <laughs> I'm writing this in a code you understand, because if they know I'm saying that Nero's the beast, they're probably going to just come over here and kill me right away. But, uh, like, he understands, like, I'll speak into this, it might cost my life, Jesus will eventually avenge it, and in the meantime we hope that they'll all make the decision to turn to him as well. So, so, yeah, there's there's a big difference violently, I would say. But there's certainly... I thought this conversation might be like, okay, yeah, I, I could see some little... Overwhelm. No, no, I, I'm, now convinced, I'm, like, I'm convinced. Yeah. is the humanistic version of...
2: <laughs> I'm convinced, yeah, you got me. I even think that... Uh, and I say this, like, with everything, probably, but, like, Tolkien uh, in Lord of the Rings kind of does the same thing with, like, when you we're talking about, like, uprisings and, like, this, this domination system. Um, the war isn't what solves the the problem. Throwing away sin is what solved the problem. It's pretty, it's pretty that unique story of, like, sacrifice of self and, and wanting to get rid of the bad system that's in place is how we're going to solve the problem, right? Not continuing to try to just usurp the throne of of a terrible situation.
1: <laughs> I think what's interesting to me is how how exhausting or how bleak much of Snowpiercer is. <laughs> and yet and it's in some kind of way the ending is still really hopeful mm. and yet very realistic or or st- how does it maybe not realistic but like There's still a pessimism, but there's a hopefulness in the midst of recognizing things are not going to be easy. Yeah, And I think that's a good balance that it strikes. So many people, I think, think of apocalyptic stories or apocalypses as this is an end-of-time story, but it's an an end-of-an-age story. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's the beginning of a new age, and the old age has to pass away for the new one to start. Mm -hmm. And there's usually some sort of cataclysmic event to... Create that moment and so we have to get to the point where we realize the train is bad (laughs) Where you're not horrified to see the train blow up Where you're like, yeah, I kind of deserved it It's painful though because you realize how many people are on that train and you don't know who survives when you're watching it go off the tracks but when they when the train comes to a settling stop and it's gone basically I love the beauty of the train's kind of turned on its side, and so the opening to the outdoors is up above. So mm-hmm. this, this thing that had been very horizontal and then kind of had a lateral move about, hey, let's go out the other door. Well, now it's like above you, and so you got to climb your way out of the train. And to then be surrounded by mountains of like, <laughs> the world is not... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, flat earthers. The world is not flat. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, this thing that says it's eternal is kind of dwarfed by a a much larger time scale of of kind of the the earth and and the universe. And trying to set out on a new adventure, obviously, it's kind of childlike Adam and Eve of, you know, you got a boy and girl starting a new humanity.
2: The writer, the writer said that that was supposed to be what that was, right? He, he said that's kind of like my Adam and Eve story.
1: And it's Adam and Eve out of a Noah story, yeah. which is... I mean, the Noah story is a beginning-of-the-world kind of story, yeah. again. Mm-hmm. Eden on a ship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to see a polar bear is such an interesting imagery. Like, And that's one of those, again, startling images of, like... I'm sure when people saw this, they're like, all right, Director Bong... Do we really want to end on a polar bear? You know, like, is. What,
0: what's going on? Gutting a fish. <laughs> polar
1: bear gutting a
0: fish. The polar bear should have had a. <laughs> polar
1: bear. It should have had a fish with blood dripping down it, right? <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> Nothing. God damn. But I do think it's like. There's so much happening in the image. And without saying anything, it allows all of it to be yeah. in that here's a creature that can't survive on its own mm-hmm. a polar bear needs an ecosystem to feed off of and so there must be other creatures out there too and it's kind of scary like that polar bear could come after you yeah <laughs> like so it's it's this interesting relationship of it gives you hope but it's also scary and humanity has a new opportunity to decide how it wants to go forward again of like we've stripped everything down cuz here's it, it, it kind of bothered me a little bit, but I think I understand the meaning of it. Is I would have been finding stuff from that train to take with me. You know, like, I could use some tools yeah. for mm-hmm. this new world, but they don't even have gloves on. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, it's too cold for that, of, yeah. of no gloves. But I think there's supposed to be something important of saying, we're leaving that behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not going to allow the products of this train
0: Be what save us or something like that. Yeah, because that's so. If this was to follow the Book of Revelation with history, they would essentially like leave Babylon and then go build it again. You know, like so. Snowpiercer movie sequel two would be we built the new train because that's (laughs) you know people are always thinking of Babylon's at the end. It's like no, they literally thought it was Rome. (laughs) Like they they're pretty clear about that. Plus, like. Babylon was also in the past because Babylon was gone. Like, mm-hmm. it didn't exist at their time. So, Babylon was the past. Babylon was Rome. And the description of Babylon also meets what America would look like among many other countries. It's a mm-hmm. sequential thing. And so, if that movie were to follow history, it'd be like, we built a new train <laughs> using the old tracks. <laughs> so, it'd be the hope that you'd catch on to uh, that. That would be like maybe the the very jesus part is like, I don't even want to touch whatever that was. Mm-hmm. Let's start
1: completely different. Yeah. I, I, th- I think we miss out with Revelation's ending because we think of it as a just the end of things. That it's meant as a beginning of things. Mm-hmm. A beginning of things that's not plagued, pun intended, I guess, <laughs> uh, by <laughs> the, the, the troubles of this world. Yeah. And that the story is opened to living out God's actual desire for you. Not that, okay, well, things are over. Well, that was great. You know, I'm glad that things ended. Okay. You know, like we want the good ending. It was opposed to like a good new beginning and life continuing or something. And I think it's clear with Snowpiercer that that ending is not actually an ending. It's, yeah. it's, it's a new opportunity, but is that, is its version of an apocalypse give you actual hope that they won't recreate it. I think Revelation gives you a better hope that God's coming down enables that this world can actually function correctly. Uh, There's no sort of... It seems really optimistic to assume that the the people aren't also the creators of the systems that create all of this violence. So... There's this hope that if we get rid of the system we will suddenly be okay. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's going to actually work out.
0: No, no. Eventually you need that not only God to come down, but humans who put on that new resurrection body where they live and act and think as God would. Well
2: now I'm now I'm sitting here thinking what if that's just another chance for us, right, as humans? What if God's like, okay, we're starting literally from nothing again. <laughs> no problems. Here's a tree, right? <laughs> I have a suspicion when the new
0: <laughs> heaven and earth comes into place, like there will still be like delegation, like God's going to, like, all right, let's, I don't know. I wonder if he's gonna be like, let's put this back together or if he's just going to do the whole thing and then just, but I imagine there will be, you know, people would look at, like, writing as work for me. I'm like, that's that's fun. <laughs> yeah. like, I hope I can write books in heaven. You know, it's like things like that. Yeah.
1: I've always loved that a part of Revelation's imagery is the urban garden of Eden. You know, that it's, yeah. it's not just all of this was just a detour that was a bad detour. Let's start back at point one. Mm-hmm. But you've got the city imagery in the midst of the Edenic kind of mm-hmm. imagery. And I think that's hopeful to me of like oh that god figures out again not necessarily redeeming as in we just need a small course correction yeah. But, yeah but how to be at work in the midst of human culture and the way of yeah. living in the world
0: yeah if you would have just gotten your wisdom from god would all this eventually have come the right way whereas humans gave it over to satan and mm-hmm. followed a different kind of wisdom and brought about it about a different, you know, so.
1: What do you think, um, the movie has to say about church life or churches or religion? <laughs> Cause I, I think I said earlier that I think you can read this story in a way of, of still imagining God in this kind of a story. But I think it has a very strong message about how churches become a part of the system that fails, that oppresses mm. Um, by co-opting a lot of religious language, yeah. even just again, it's a term that we use in politics too. With particularly, I guess, in England, with minister. But you know, you got the minister language. You got sacred and eternal, and all of this kind of imagery. And I'm pretty certain that there's a kid in the classroom. One of the masks that it has what looks kind of like a cross, or at least a T, or something. You know, but mm-hmm. I, I do think that the movie. Is calling out that religion often just props up you know this the system that is harming people
0: mm,
1: yeah. I, I would be interested in a further exploration of how liberation theology and yeah, churches from a different kind of tradition might be a part of this train movement of you could have added a religious figure like the stero- like you could have a stereotype character that's standing in for a religious figure a part of this revolution or a part of Gum's revolution or, you know yeah. but i think it just kind of simply states it as
0: overall religion often just props up mm. this yeah i mean yeah. i think you see that probably especially right now in many conversations but where again that beast becomes the becomes jesus himself you know that's the yeah. john's lamb that is a beast where it's like this thing's trying to pretend it's jesus you know <laughs> but it's it's not and everyone's like falling for it so it seems like there's there's a lot of that in this where it's like the beast the lamb it, it all turns into one image it's sacred it's eternal and the church or what's represented of it in there falls right for it i think just return to Nazi Germany was another good example. It's like Hitler came in over through like the way you do church, you now pledge to mind Kampf instead of the Bible, you get married upon a sword, not rings and things like that. It's like, how how did you fall for this? Like clearly you were already worshiping the beast, you know? It's like like these are these are stark stark examples that the church should have been like maybe this isn't <laughs> this isn't right but it's just like completely ah uh, the beast is sacred we follow that so
2: yeah it becomes the same way with flags right how yeah, we, yeah how we view the flag and um, I think that's one of the things in America that we we um, also we the American flag appears in a lot of churches and I'm not saying that's bad right um, but when that becomes a religious icon.
0: Which it does if it appears yep. in churches, because that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's well,
2: the only reason you would think. I, I like when, like, when there's like the when they have all the world flags, like maybe that are all around, like kind of uniting all these cultures under one religion, kind of. A yeah, thing. that's a different. That's think, that's statement. great. But when you're using it, like, it's on the pulpit, and there's an American flag there, and it's like, all right, everybody, before we get into service, let's all uh, sing, the, sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and uh, that's definitely religious. And let's pledge allegiance to our flag, and then we can go into service. Like, that doesn't really that doesn't really fit, you know? And that kind of adds on to, the, like, what they viewed with Snowpiercer. These kids were, like, they had a song. They're going to sit down. They're going to sing their song about how this eternal engine is going to keep <laughs> on chugging. And their their god is going to keep on making that eternal engine chug. And, uh, man, they're going to be so happy about it the entire time, and everything's great. And, uh... It, they use that, that religious ideology, ideology of a train, of that moving vehicle, um, to push forward their, their status and to make sure that, you know, these people in the back, they don't do anything. They don't do anything to help our culture. They don't do anything to help our people. They're just taking up space and they're just taking up food and they're, they're just living off of what we do and uh i think that the church often does that you know we instead of serving those people and saying wow you're hurt you're broken let me help you we as the church do the same thing and we say like no look at how great our country is if it wasn't for these people trying to live off our food stamps then we would we'd be fine we shouldn't be saying that in the church like we should be the ones going out and trying to get food for them trying to help them how can we bring you closer to god this is something that we would we do because our god has taught us to do it <laughs>
1: I love you talking about pushing forward and on that train imagery. It is a circular track. Like, <laughs> there is no going forward, right? It's just yeah, around for sure. in circles. And I can't remember, they said it was like three years and that they started breaking parts. And, you know, like, how many people in their, their church life have felt like they haven't been able to make any progress on people loving more, people being more just. You know, like, it just feels like you're just going around on a track. And yet we have these religious moments that we'll still like we like to honor like, hey, we can be in the middle of a fight, but hey, it's New Year, you know? I've, I've <laughs> everyone in the car, yeah. let's count down. Yep. Yeah.
0: And I maybe this was answered in the movie, I don't remember. But like the question I was wondering the whole time is like, why are we moving anywhere on this train? Like <laughs> Why go and like? Are they trying to see if anything thaws out so air or is that just further illustration? No, of like,
2: why are we doing this? No, it's <laughs> an actual thing. So uh, they're moving so that they can get water because okay. that the, when they're breaking through the ice, okay. it's All taking right. in the water and it helps them. So they're using perpetual motion. Mm-hmm. Is like the idea is that they're using their momentum to power the rest of the train,
0: which isn't momentum. Is again the yeah, <laughs> the, you know, it's just a cycle. It's just a cycle. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Good to know.
2: Yeah. So they they do have an explanation for why they're
1: moving, for sure. So would you recommend Snowpiercer to anybody? Oh, yeah. I'd recommend Snowpiercer a lot.
0: Now I would. (laughs) Only if you listen to this podcast, you (laughs) know. I enjoyed it a lot more the second time. I think the first time I was just, like, turning it on for a movie. The second time, after you said, I see Revelation in this, I was like, now I want to watch it for, (laughs) for, like, allegory. And then... Now that we've talked about this, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Now it's really, really clear. So Man,
2: I would have recommended it just as a movie. I, I think that it's it's really good. It's really well done. The author is trying to tell a story, you know. He's trying to make you, you feel for these characters. He's trying to make you understand that you live in a culture that is similar to this, right? So that's one thing we can get as Americans is, like, he's literally screaming at us in this movie. Look at the world that we live in. Please stop being an oppressor, you know. Um So yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Even if you're, even if you're like, oh, I, don't, I don't believe in that Jesus stuff, you know, I recommend just just watch it. Just get what it has to say.
0: <laughs> Though I will throw in the little pastoral tidbit here. This oh, yeah, is an R-rated sure. movie. Very violent. There's language. Uh, yeah, so, you know, just heads up if you're going to watch it after this. If you already watched it before and never came back to the podcast, it's because of, wow, how could people see anything? <laughs> a bunch of pastors telling me to watch this crazy fish movie. I love I love
1: the, because I, um, I would do the same thing of, you know, so let me tell you. So as a pastor, I want to give you some some notes of things you could expect that are in the movie that maybe you might have a hard time with. Um, I, I've been trying to watch their classic movies since there's no there hadn't been movies out this yeah. year Yeah, and so I, I just made it through Apocalypse Now uh, Francis Ford Coppola oh, man Which is a whole story on morality <laughs> <laughs> And it is a interesting movie um, But the line that really struck me was Because uh, it's, it's told during kind of supposed to be about Vietnam And they're like, okay, so in the midst of a lot of killing and death and war, they're telling us we can't say certain words or write certain words on the plane. You know, like we have an interesting world of morality of like that Snowpiercer is calling us to. Of yeah. you know, we have certain things we don't want to necessarily be involved with, but we don't have eyes to see what children are being sacrificed for the things that we benefit from yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to say it.
2: This world is just the continuation of the Willy Wonka franchise. I don't know if you guys have seen those theories. Yeah, That's like the biggest theory for it is that it's it's just the... Yeah, look it up on Reddit. Um, it actually makes a lot of sense, uh, surprisingly. Um, so yeah, if you haven't watched that theory just for fun, it's a great one.
1: If you haven't watched Parasite... Oh man, Parasite. Bong Joon-ho. What he does horizontally here, he does vertically in Parasite. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's true. Cool. Well, uh, Dallas Flippin, pastor of First Baptist Church, thanks for joining us today. This has been very insightful. Yeah. Uh, And you are now officially going to be here every week (laughs) because you made this so much more interesting. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yeah.